Hello and welcome everyone. So great to have you here with us today for this very special segment of Restorative Justice on the Rise as part of the Connection Series. Restorative Justice on the Rise was founded in 2011 to serve dialogue, education, advocacy, and movement building in the public hemisphere of restorative justice and peace building. I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and I'm really honored, deeply honored and excited to present to you a team from Justice Matters out of Lawrence, Kansas, but working very much regionally and beyond. Today we have Joanna Harder, who is the co-chair of the Justice Matters Jail Alternatives Campaign. I'll say a little bit more about each of our guests today um, after talking a bit about Justice Ma Matters. Also, we have Dr. John Arante, who is the co-chair of the Justice Matters Restorative Justice in Schools campaign. And then finally, we have Ben McConnell, who is the lead organizer of Justice Matters in Lawrence, Kansas. And today's topic, of course, as you might be noticing on the slide, is advocacy, organizing, and restorative justice. It's really great to bring uh, the Justice Matters program into the hemisphere and listenership today with you. And just a little background um, about Justice Matters, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan 501c3 community organizing group based in Douglas County, Kansas, comprised of 17 diverse faith congregations. The mission of Justice Matters is to surface, understand, and address issues of injustice in the Lawrence-Douglas County, Kansas region. They've successfully addressed a broad range of community-led issues, including crisis intervention training, excuse me, for all Lawrence police officers, and a $10 million investment in permanent affordable housing. But for the purpose of this podcast, the most relevant experience in our five-year history as an organization relates to our expanded mental health services and organized opposition to a proposed jail expansion. In the fall of 2014, Justice Matters organized a 112 small group discussions with over 1,400 people in attendance. Small group leaders were trained to guide discussions beyond the superficial or opinions and surface stories about the day-to-day -day issues and anxieties impacting people's lives. Repeatedly and regardless of geography, income, race, or gender, we heard stories of people suffering from mental illness who could not find adequate treatment in Lawrence. Four months of focused community-led research confirmed the stories that they heard. Police officers reported an average of eight mental health calls every shift. Mental health consumers described six to eight weeks lag times for psychiatric consultation. Lawrence Memorial Hospital had a staff walkout in the ER because people in mental health crisis were piling up. The sheriff was circulating a preliminary plan to expand the jail in order to accommodate the growing numbers of inmates with mental health treatment needs. Justice Matters organized a delegation of over 25 stakeholders, including the mayor, chief of police, local hospital CEO, 
director of the Federally Qualified Mental Health Clinic in April 2015 to visit together in person the Restoration Center in Bexar County, Texas. During the visit, county commissioners and representatives from the Sheriff's Office announced that building such a treatment facility would be possible if paired together with a massive jail expansion as one all-or-nothing sales tax referendum. For 16 months, Justice Matters and other community groups encouraged officials to allow each project to be considered on their own merit as separate items on the ballot. Ultimately, in the spring of 2018, the County Commission called for a special mail-in election to rise to, excuse me, to raise sales tax by one half a penny to fund both a jail expansion and a behavioral health center similar to the one in Bexar County, Texas. So th this um, project and the ex um, expansion of it, I'll let our guests tell us more about that today, but really want to encourage everyone to check out Justice Matters. Um, you can find out more about Justice Matters at their website, which is linked on the webcast page in the upper right-hand corner, direct link button, or just go to Justice Matters in Kansas, all one word, dot O-R-G. So just a few words, and then we're going to dive right into the conversation today about our very special guests. Um, it's so great to hear the focus on mental health issues. We know that uh, at Restorative Justice on the Rise, we have special concern for the fact that um, the what we think are low estimates um, in jails and prisons ac across the United States um, report that at least a quarter to half of all um, imprisoned have uh, mental illness or a serious, a more serious diagnosis. And I'm again looking forward to hearing from our team today more about those statistics at present. So again, welcome to Joanna Harder. She is the co-chair of the Justice Matters Jail Alternatives Campaign, and she serves as pastor of Peace Mennonite Church in Lawrence, Kansas. She has a master's in English from the University of Kansas and a master's of divinity from Central Baptist Theological Seminary. She has written for publications such as Leader Magazine and Christian Century, and she blogs at spaciousfaith.com. She is also a parent, spouse, pet caretaker, crafter, and writer. And a warm welcome to Dr. John Arante, who is co-chair of the Justice Matters Restorative Justice in Schools campaign and the program founder of the Prodigal Son Reenactment Guild, an association of craftsmen in a particular trade who possess the willingness to reenact the prodigal son story, Luke 15, 11 through 32, each time a juvenile offender comes home to the neighborhood. About four to six weeks prior to release, pastors of churches in Lenexa that serve the neighborhood to which the youth will return will be contacted. Each youth will be sponsored by a family group conference team comprised of stakeholders dedicated to develop and support a successful reintegration strategy for the particular juvenile. John is also a Kansas Supreme Court approved mediator. And last but not least, 
the um, lead organizer of Justice Matters is Mr. Ben McConnell, and he is based out of Lawrence, Kansas. He graduated from Indiana University Northwest in Gary, Indiana in 1995 with a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. After college, Ben became a full-time volunteer with the Church of the Brethren. In 1997, he was accepted into Green Corps, an environmental advocacy training program based in Boston. In 1999, he went to work with Citizens of Louisville Organized and United Together, or CLOUT, in Louisville, Kentucky. He assisted efforts to end gang violence among youth to improve reading in low-performing public schools, and to remove neighborhood eyesores in the south end of Louisville. In 2001, Ben moved to the east side of Lawrence, where he and his family now reside. He telecommuted and traveled extensively on staff with the Direct Action and Research Training, DART, Center for 13 years. He assisted DART's efforts to hire and train new organizers going into the field of congregation-based community organizing. Ben and his wife, Sarah, have had over 16 foster children. Ben has taken his adopted son, Joshua, to visit his biological father, Jimmy, in local jails throughout the region over the last several years. So once again, it is my honor and delight to host this mini panel discussion today and presentation on advocacy organizing and restorative justice and just wanting to warmly welcome each of you, the three of you here into this virtual dialogue space. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank Our you, pleasure. Molly. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Molly. And it's so wonderful to get to know each of you a bit more. I'm sure our listeners are feeling the same way, and um, just the wealth of wisdom and commitment that each of you have um, in such a focused manner. And I know that, that I, I didn't read the entire background of these specialized projects in mental health, and I'm wondering um, if you might like to just one of you or each of you share a little bit about that before we go into the slide presentation in particular. Actually, I think it's part of our story as we talk about okay. organization sort of shifting its focus from um, uh, kind of exclusively about mental health into systems change that included restorative justice in schools and, and jail alternatives. So I think we'll be touching on it. Um, uh, so it, I think we could probably keep that point and put a pen in it for now, but um, just because it's, I, I find that for people to understand how the process of organizing at the grassroots level works is through storytelling, and our story starts with mental health, but then evolves into restorative justice in schools and, and um, restorative mm -hmm. justice as a as a uh, reaction to a jail expansion proposal. So um, I, if it's okay, I think we'll just hold off on telling you more about the Mental Health Crisis Center, except to say we're really pleased to say that we will be opening a crisis center in Douglas County 
2021 as a result of our work um, and the mm -hmm. cooperation of lots of stakeholders that have been pushing for it throughout our community. Wow. Such a huge need. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Ben. Yeah. Um, what I, when I was invited, Molly, by uh, Dr. Gilbert to um, bring Joanna and John into this conversation, uh, I was sort of, it, I was kind of wondering what can we add to all of these phenomenal people that have been on the Restorative Justice on the Rise podcast? And I, I landed on this concept of advocacy, organizing, and restorative justice um, because I think uh, your audience in 12 different countries, um, having listened to um, um, experts tell why we need restorative justice, I, I think as I listened to that, I understood that one of the things that probably is really surprising for those who understand why we need it is why we is the fact that we don't have it. Um, and so uh, landed on this title of advocacy, organizing restorative justice because I think for your listeners, the thing that we would like to add is um, this component of the public arena where policy decisions are being made. Um, who leads in those policies, and how can grassroots um, stakeholders who really have a passion for restorative justice uh, take the mantle and bring democratic decision-making to these systems so that restorative justice can actually be having the impact that we know it, it is there? Um, and so uh, kind of just to put a frame on this conversation, we're going to be talking a, a lot about not necessarily why restorative justice works, um, because we presume your listeners understand that, but how you get systems to um, recognize uh, that restorative justice is, is needed, and then to fidelity um, implement that. And so um, that's the work of, of Justice Matters and the 17 congregations and neighbors that we brought together um, over the last five years. And um, we'd just love to tell you the story of that with hope that that, that would provide um, maybe a roadmap for somebody in your listening audience that wants to see it in their schools um, or wants to or has it in their heart that more money going into jails and prisons is not what they want to see, but more restorative justice. Mm -hmm. um, mm. Would that be okay for us, just as a, a way of thinking about this? Phenomenal. And I believe absolutely um, the listeners will concur. Uh, it's a big need for um, answering to how we go about in implementing and um, working with as partners those within the current um, and traditional justice systems. So thank you. Yeah, sure. Um, we uh, and I'm moving on to the next to the to our first kind of focal slide. Um, we think that uh, we want to elevate the discussion. Um, beyond bad actors 
um, for example, stories, we hear stories of um, maybe judges or prosecuting attorneys that uh, believe that they can change behavior through stiff sentencing guidelines um, and this thirst for trying to punish uh, with greater um, uh, use of punishment. Um, instead of thinking about bad actors uh, in those cases, we actually think our systems are designed to punish and they operate precisely with that. Well, they operate the way, the way they were designed. And so we try to juxtapose, uh, have a juxtaposition between the punishment approach, which uh, in this diagram um, shows it, it being put into place in two different types of systems. On the top is how does the punishment approach respond to misbehavior in schools? And that first chain that you see at the top there. And then on the um, lower half of the punishment approach, how does it respond to crime in the community? I'm going to turn it over to John to talk to us about what's the chain of events that occur once misbehavior occurs in, the, in, in schools. Uh, thank you, Ben. Yeah. Um, as a parent, I am um, called to the fundamental principle that uh, we are to punish the behavior and not the person. Um, and as difficult as that is to do in our homes, it seems that it's even more difficult in schools and uh, in the larger community. Um, and so in the punishment approach, um, students are often suspended, either an in-school suspension or an out-of-school suspension. They're literally removed from the learning environment. And as a consequence to that, those students, um, they miss out on the learning. Um, further along, students are then more likely to fall behind and, and get lower grades. And current research shows that um, these struggling students often get frustrated and embarrassed and Negative feelings uh, are created that often lead to more misbehavior and, and cause students to drop out. Um, in 2016, um, the Kansas legislature passed a, a Senate Bill 367 based on research that they had done to recognize this alarming concern for a school-to-prison pipeline. Um, and it called for a serious revision of the juvenile justice system, and it also called for um, memorandums of understandings between superintendents at each school district along with uh, the district attorney's office and the judicial branches in those school district areas. So Kansas has made some progress along those lines, um, but we still recognize in a restorative justice mindset that, um, and as a substitute teacher myself, um, students that are removed from the classroom uh, do not get an opportunity to dialogue about what that behavior, how it manifests itself, the impact that it had on the classroom, the impact that it had on the relationship with the teacher and the student. Um, and most of the time, they're completely just reintegrated. Um, and we often find they go back to that moment of the first behavioral issue and uh, there's, there's no uh, concern for how we mediate or restore the community at large. 
much less the individual and, and the issues that caused uh, him or her to create that behavior. And as a teacher, too, sometimes I realize that uh, we sometimes, too, forget our proactive and restorative techniques, and we also fall victim to issues that we bring into the classroom on that particular day. So, um, And in my research, I, I did a lot of uh, work with Albert Bandura's research on um, moral disengagement, and one of the aspects he talks about is our use of uh, the term collateral damage to dehumanize the victim impact and the community impact and um, the harm that was created. And, and so in a space where we talk about collateral damage, we sort of take it for granted that there's no requirement to go back and restore and heal. Um, and so we're talking about a process that would work in conjunction with some of the existing um, punishment models and student behavior um, guidelines in our school district. And then, so uh, Molly, we sent out, it, just to kind of give you a sense of the kind of culture shift that we're trying to lead at the grassroots level, we published, oh, I think, uh, close to 3,000 of these postcards um, and distributed among uh, congregations throughout the Lawrence-Douglas County area. And what we're trying to show is um, this is a systemic uh, philosophical um, construct that suggests that, number one, and, and this is not going to be news to your listeners, but number one, that the punishment approach is essentially about a violation of a moral code. And once that moral code is broken, a chain of events starts um, kicking into action. John just outlined the misbehavior in schools. Um, for crime, which is misbehavior in the community, our chain of events is we call the police, people are arrested. In Douglas County, this says 15 days is our average time of an inmate in our county jail, but in fact it's, it's grown this last year to 20 days on average. Attorneys begin battling over guilt versus innocence. The legal process is, um, oftentimes destabilizes offenders' lives. Research shows that three days in jail, um, as, many, as few as those will actually um, increase the likelihood of future incarceration because people lose their hourly work, um, then they become uh, housing insecure, and then children are lost to the foster care system. But we also see that the victim is sidelined throughout that process, and then punishment is handed down. So whether it's um, in schools or in our criminal justice system, the system works the way it's designed to work. And that's an important thing. Um, we've been sending citizens in to do court watches, um, and we've been struck by, uh, in our first bail bond hearings on a daily basis at 3.30 every day, we see people telecast from our county jail, and the judge, the tools that he uses to determine how to 
um, change behavior is principally using a punitive approach. How can we punish this person to change behavior? Um, that's not <clears throat> bad prosecuting attorneys. That's not um, bad judges. That's not um, teachers using suspension because they don't care about students. That's not principals who are um, just heavy-handed. That's literally the way the American system in schools and the criminal justice system is designed. That that's that's by its very nature. Um, and then what we've been trying to do is explain to people, like John mentioned, the collateral damage of those systems, and it's and it's really terrible track record of changing behavior, um, especially uh, using taxpayer money. But then contrasting it with the restorative approach, which obviously is going to be um, uh, a repetition of, of many of the things that your folks will be aware of. But what we want to highlight is this is really about systems. Their design, um, the philosophical underpinnings to the way they work, um, and the kind of, if you will, sort of culture shift um, that requires significant leadership in order to alter um, or add into. So I'll have Joanna just talk about the restorative approach, which should be kind of review for most folks. So. Right, when we think about the punishment approach, there's a violation that has to be punished. And that's so ingrained, for most of us who have grown up in the United States at least, that is so ingrained, we don't even realize that it's how we think and how we function. That's just how the world works, violation and punishment. But to shift, make a shift to the restorative approach, we want to think about and talk about harm and restoration. Um, right, so it's it's not the violation of a rule that's a problem. It's a harm that was caused by someone's action. And the end point isn't someone being punished for the sake of punishment, but the end point is how to restore the harm that was done. And that necessarily um, or very often involves including the victim in that process, um, which in both the school and the legal context um, the, the victims of an offense are often just discounted and ignored. The focus is on the offender. And so it, it restores some of the balance there by taking um, both the offender and the victim and the entire community um, into account and trying, um, when possible, to bring all of the actors and all of those who are impacted by the harm together. Um, and then there's not, and John will talk a little more about this in a minute, but there, there's not just a checklist of action and consequence, you did this, this happens, checklist kind of thing, but it's a more collaborative and creative process about how the harm can be restored, and that looks different um, in different contexts, which means that in some ways this can be a more time-consuming approach, um, certainly takes a lot more creative energy, willingness for people to engage, but everyone is able to decide um, what the best way forward is, how the harm can be repaired. Um, there has to be monitoring to ensure accountability. Um, this is not a, an easy way out or letting offenders off the hook in any way, and the accountability piece is really important, which we've heard from experts um, 
assertive practice over and over again, the accountability piece has to be there. But the ideal end of this approach is not that someone is adequately punished. The ideal end of this approach is that relationships are, are restored, that communities are whole, that victims can feel safe. And um, as I'm sure most of the listeners know, the victim satisfaction rates for restorative approaches are amazingly high, particularly when compared to um, the satisfaction rates for victims who go through the more traditional punitive approach. And, and so again, it's, it's not that we have to con convince individual bad actors to change their ways. It's an entire systemic shift that, frankly, a lot of people in the system, I mean, we've talked to judges, we've talked to teachers, but a lot of people who really want to work in restorative ways are stuck in a punitive system, doing the best they can within the system. Um, and, and so those are the folks that we look for to see how we can support them and work with them to change the system to allow them to do the type of restorative work that they're already wanting to do and struggling to do. And to give you kind of just a little bit of an exclamation point on this, and I apologize, um, this is the uh, this is a, a, a page out of the student handbook in our school district, uh, which I'm going to have John kind of talk about from the context of equality, trying to seek equality in meeting out punishment versus building up the equity of the students involved. Um, but you mentioned earlier, uh, Molly, that the, the text was so small and it'll be hard for people to see. And, and what I would say to that is um, when you're trying to, this page is probably a page in any handbook in any school district that systematically designed to meet out punishment to change behavior as compared to restore relationships in response to harm. And so like our legal system, it's a codification of every possible thing from spitballing to uh, not showing up to school to bringing alcohol, every possible misbehavior that a school teacher um, could see in their classroom, and then at the bottom, what is the punishment that um, I will put in place in order to get, to change the behavior of that student? Now, uh, that is again a sign that we're actually systematizing the concept of punitive practices, um, and. It's been interesting because our, our school system recognizes that punitive practice leads to disproportionate numbers of students of color being suspended out of school, which makes everybody, teachers, principals, school board members, um, really uncomfortable. Um, and so instead of trying to think about how to change the system itself, we actually um, seek uh, equality in the um, 
fairness of the punishment meted out. Now, I'll ask John to kind of talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's uh, kind of a conundrum in a way because uh, even in the legal system, the legal criminal justice system in the state of Kansas, uh, there's a matrix that all judges use to identify uh, the crime and its um, appropriate consequence so that there is, quote, uh, quality across the state. We have urban and rural spaces and um, in an effort to try to make sure that the same crime gets the same punishment, uh, a matrix has been in place. And as we have spoken about, it's it's a systemic approach to uh, that we've been using to try to deal with misbehavior. And, and so you see this carryover in the school system to use the same sort of um, objective, if you will, approach to uh, establish equality so that in a middle school or an elementary school or in a high school, if a person brings a weapon to school, independent of the age, um, that the, the consequence is the same for a, a six-year-old or, or an 18-year-old. Um, and, and we couch that as some form of equality. But from an equity standpoint, I think there you could make an argument that um, the brain development of a six-year-old is not the same as the brain development of an 18-year-old in terms of what would be the consequence of bringing a weapon to school. Um, and, and so in an effort to try to move more toward equality, and it was interesting that this um, research committee on um, restorative justice in school actually started with a community concern over this disproportionate uh, treatment of in-school and out-of-school suspension in some of the schools in the Lawrence public school system. Um, and as the research committee came together and um, explored more about that, uh, the expansion was toward the equity of all students, not just those uh, that are, are identified as uh, disproportionate minorities. And, and even in that Senate Bill 367 that I mentioned before, there is a, a complete committee on trying to establish um, or identify paths forward for the racial disproportionality that exists in the criminal justice system as well. So again, it's kind of a, a systemic issue in our culture. And uh, again, I don't think that these predisposed matrices um, allow us to deal with the individuals involved in the behavior, but just focus on the behavior themselves. and. In the restorative justice mindset, this is about sustaining healthy communities. And any healthy community is always threatened with some harm to that community. And the call is then for the community to, to step forward and say, uh, this harm threatens the equity of our, of our community. And it, it requires our attention. And let's come together to sort this out and that let's just not look at the behavior. In schools also there's a lot of teachers are being uh, trained about trauma-informed care. Uh, and so a lot of people, you know, there's an ACES survey that helps you identify the likelihood that a, a youth has been exposed to trauma. Um, and again, if we're punishing the behavior, 
um, we're missing an opportunity to maybe help understand that trauma and, and heal some of the harm related to the trauma. And I just, I, I, uh, I wanted to pause, Molly, um, to see if mm -hmm. you have any questions about this, but I guess what I would just say is the thesis that we have in our story right now is that um, the system itself uh, is designed with a punitive philosophical um, belief that that's how you change behavior. Um, although the science and the evidence doesn't point to that, and um, therefore the real problem isn't that there's a there isn't enough listeners to restorative justice on the rise. The real problem is that you're really trying to change um, the very culture of an of an entrenched systemic mm -hmm. philosophical thinking, uh, and mm -hmm. that throughout history is not unlike um, the concept of segregation. Uh, you know, the separate but equal. If you think about that as kind of a natural mm -hmm. inclination, that people believed at one point in time that the races needed to be separated, but they wanted it to be fair. And so they tried to create fair but separate systems. And then what you realize is that you're isolating, um, breaking down relationship and not addressing the harm, but the system itself is, is doing precisely what it's designed to do. And then it requires sort of an outside pressure of some kind, um, in our case, a, a grassroots pressure to question the very um, philosophical underpinnings of that culture and to point toward something um, that's more hopeful. And so um, mm -hmm. we really try not to attack individual decision makers for the system to which they're um, the authority over, but to actually talk about the spiritual nature of the system itself and, and the way it thinks and operates mm -hmm. and try to distinguish from that and before we begin getting into the hope of an alternative vision, which is restorative justice. Um, uh, wanted to stop there because we've done a lot of um, unloading uh, brain dump on you there. Did you have any questions or comments or thoughts about that? Thank you so much to each of you. Yes, I, I actually do have something that, that segs from what you were just sharing, Ben. Um, one of the most generative spaces of, of conversation that we've enjoyed over uh, almost nine years now in Restorative Justice on the Rise Dialogues is centered around what what you were saying about um, partnering um, with traditional system officials per se. Um, how does that look? What does that feel like? What does it, um, you know, maybe on the practical level look like? Um, for example. 
uh, many of our guest speakers and advocates and practitioners have observed, for, for example, that when a judge or a police officer or perhaps a DA um, come to a circle process, they undergo a, a very deep transformation almost every time. Almost every every case that we've heard of where um, a public official, a public servant, um, our friends, you know, I'm hearing you say, these are our friends and our, our partners in, in looking at the systems that we're all holding and how we can maybe do better. Um, and, and certainly not to lecture them that, you know, um, the, that we have the answers, but to listen, right? So I'm, I'm curious from each of you, what have you observed as being effective in gaining the interest and partnership from traditional system of system officials and perhaps any details about a process that has been effective for you? Because I know each of you are doing very significant work and have been for decades um, in working with traditional officials. Yeah, well, there have been, there are a lot of individual conversations that go on, a lot of showing up at county commission meetings and other, um, other meetings, but for me the most um, exciting piece of this work you're talking about that we've done is just about a little over a week ago we had um, a restorative justice summit in, um, in Lawrence and Dr. Gilbert came, Chief Butler from Lamont, Colorado, um, on the criminal justice side, but we were able to bring together um, teachers, the superintendent, the DA, judges, lawyers, um, police chiefs, people from someone from the sheriff's department, um, all came together at our invitation to learn about restorative justice. There was a general presentation um, for the full group about the basic principles of it, and then there were breakout sessions. Um, John led the one for the educators. I led the one for the criminal justice team where they were able to interact um, on a little more intimate level with, with experts in their particular field. And um, that, that for me was really exciting to see the level of interest and engagement that people have. And I think that's an important death like Ben was talking about. Um, you can see the problems in the current system, but you also want to, we also want to offer visions of, of hope and steps that we could take forward together. And so the Restorative Justice Summit for us was a wonderful way to support people who want to do that, to educate people who are interested and might be willing to move in the direction of restorative justice. And for us as an organization, to get some insight into who in the community um, are our potential allies in this, who are the people that we should be supporting um, that are willing to work with us in moving forward with restorative justice in the community. And I would just say, I'd add to that, that you basically what we're trying to do is at every turn provide the opportunity to expose, engage, inform, um, and um, we recognize that we're sort of at a base of a mountain um, where the summit of real culture change 
is going to be a steep climb. Um, and so uh, as, I t as we go through and tell you the story of the entrenched interests that um, we came up against with um, a desire to build a bigger jail, um, uh, you'll probably recognize that the arc of the moral universe does bend toward justice, um, but it's probably uh, being bent by large numbers of people getting organized um, that creates that bend. It's not inevitable that we will naturally arrive at more restorative systems um, in our community. And we'll talk about a couple of other places where we've witnessed um, uh, people doing it based on motivations around saving taxpayer money, um, people doing it because a foundation supports it financially. And our, our story is really about um, people at the grassroots level feeling like um, this is the time for criminal justice reform, and it's also the time um, to go ahead and confront racial bias um, in the school-to-prison pipeline. So, um, but make no mistake about it, um, we are certainly um, looking at a major culture shift. The system itself, as it is today in the United States, um, believes um, that uh, the best, single, most effective way to address crime or misbehavior in schools um, uh, is to isolate um, and to punish. Um, and there's a significant amount of satisfaction in seeing in the newspaper somebody getting sentenced to 50 years to life. Um, uh, in terms of retribution. And so the answer of restorative justice, although more effective, and um, is definitely going to require some significant culture shift. We know there's a better way. We think that the addition we have to the conversation among your participants in the past is that that better way requires courageous um, tension uh, in the public arena to change the systems and the way they operate. Um, so I'll go into a little bit of our story. Um, go ahead, John. Uh, excuse me. I just want to go back to um, highlight something that uh, Joanna talked about, too, in terms of how Justice Matters has chosen to influence the stakeholders. We had national leaders brought in. Dr. Gilbert, Chief Butler, and Dr. Ryan Fenderson from the International Institute of Restorative Practices. These are practitioners that helped us understand systemic change isn't like downloading another app. It doesn't automatically update the old app. These are systems that have taken uh, 5, 10, 15 years to implement. And it's a, it's, there's no destination, it's a process where you continually improve the way you do business. Um, I was in an organization uh, in part of my earlier career where we looked at uh, Deming's process improvement cycle. And we realized that the person that's identified as uh, you know, putting that component on the widget 
takes personal responsibility that you're calling them out. So when Ben talks about we're not trying to put pressure or spotlight the people doing the work they're supposed to do, it's just there's a better way to do the work. And we just want to open that conversation and create that space of opportunity to have those dialogues, um, to step away from the system that we're ingrained with and to investigate different approaches. So as you mentioned in the uh, uh, introduction so eloquently, Molly, we, uh, we conducted a series of small groups across the community, uh, largely in the basements of churches or around kitchen tables back in 2015. It, it's their first step. Um, we call it our listening process. And we had 108 small group leaders trained to try to kind of get at not what people's um, opinions or recent editorial comments of the paper, but what are the things that keep you up at night worrying? Um, and then probe below that to really um, make sure that we're talking about um, real stories. And we just over and over again kept hearing about mental health. And we voted um, overwhelmingly to make that the top priority for Justice Matters. And then we um, don't think that we need to hand over um, our ability to think critically exclusively to experts. Um, so we do what's called community-led research so that we set up research committees with citizens, everyday people who are touched by these problems. And um, we do subject matter experts, uh, we do periodical reviews, and we try to systematically engage natural citizens in the democratic process of understanding the problems that they're seeing and what the potential solutions are. And then um, our final phase is, um, it's, it's a, uh, comes from a book of uh, the Old Testament called the, the Book of Nehemiah. Um, in chapter 5, I won't tell you the whole story, but it's a story of somebody identifying in their community that people were being sold into slavery um, for usury taxes. And um, what Nehemiah did was he called a large assembly of, of the grassroots people of Jerusalem and asked the officials to change the system in the city. And so we've organized in, in the four years of our experience uh, we've organized large um, citizen assemblies annually that have ranged between 700 and um, close to 1,800 people in attendance on four different occasions. And in those meetings, we proposed specific solutions to the problems that we've surfaced and, and researched. And um, what, what uh, the first issue, and you'll have to kind of bear with this because um, like all work in communities seeking to be more just and fair, the storyline is linear, but it, it has lots of, um, of uh, uh, different break-off sentences, I guess you could say. We started with recognizing that we had, due to budget cuts, um, we had a very frayed safety net when it come to, came to mental health. And uh, we went down to Bear County, San Antonio, Texas. 
they were looking at a bigger jail. Their, their, their jail had been overcrowded, and they were floating um, a discussion about building a second jail. And down there, their mayor is called the county judge, which I have no idea why. But um, the county judge speculated that there were a significant number of people falling into the criminal justice system, housed and languishing in the jail, who would be better suited if they received mental health treatment. Um, and he also speculated that it would cost less money and that it would um, perhaps lead people on the path to recovery, lowering crime and increasing public safety. And um, they, had that, they had that idea back in um, uh, 2001, and actually, due to political leadership of that county um, judge, uh, they decided to not build that second jail, um, pour money into mental health treatment. Um, they created a recovery center where people could go by law enforcement or of their own accord 24-7, um, receive drug treatment or um, behavioral health treatment immediately. And um, lo and behold, they tracked that they'd saved the taxpayers millions of dollars compared to building that second jail. They didn't need to build the second jail, and the first jail that was overcrowded had alleviated its um, population down to about two-thirds of its original numbers in spite of massive population growth in the county. And uh, we were so struck by this that we decided to take a whole group of stakeholders down to Bear County, Texas and see it for ourselves. Um, while we were down there, the county commission had already put wheels into motion to build onto a jail that we had constructed in 1999. And so um, during this trip to San Antonio with a number of pastors and leaders from Justice Matters, we were informed that if there was any discussion of a recovery center to be built in Douglas County, um, that it would uh, more than likely uh, have to be included um, as one single ballot measure to, to double the size of our jail. Um, we, as an organization, had a vested interest in answering the cries of our people um, by seeing that mental health crisis center get built. Um, and we were taken a little bit aback by the idea that um, in order to get the crisis center, we would have to spend what it amounted to, including operation costs, $168 million in a bigger jail um, to construct and operate. And so we were kind of put in this very difficult position of trying to answer the needs of the people that we were concerned about um, while having this other plan be um, joined at the hip uh, of, of seeing a bigger jail. And so um, we started to work toward um, trying to enable these two decisions to be put before voters at, as separate ideas. Um, which would enable us to remain agnostic on the jail expansion um, and be in full support of the mental health. Um, so we didn't have to um, really even have to make a public statement about how we felt about the jail expansion. We could just 
um, focused our efforts on making sure that the um, the fi financing locally could be raised to see exactly what we saw in Bear County, um, a crisis center constructed to lower the number of people in jail, diverting them from the criminal justice system and providing them with treatment. Um, but the entrenched interests of our county ultimately decided um, that they were going to put both of these two things on the ballot as one up or down vote. And that kind of left us in this untenable position, which is um, in order to heal the sick, uh, we would need to agree to lock up more people. Um, and so a special election was called uh, in April of 2018. And um, with great consternation internally, um, our uh, coalition had to have this really difficult debate over um, uh, accepting um, a major investment in more incarceration in order to get the kind of treatment that we wanted. Um, Joanna became the co-chair of our Jail Alternatives Committee at that point because we felt like if we were going to be cast in this position, we'd have to do some research on what's the story behind bigger jails. And so I'll, I'll ask her to kind of comment about this moment in time for our organization. Yeah, so it, it was difficult because, as Ben said, that the incarceration had not been one of the community priorities that had been lifted up. And um, it's probably um, important to note Lawrence, Douglas County in general, Lawrence in particular, um, or a vast majority white community. And in this conversation about incarceration and the reason that, that I agreed to, to be part of the conversation and help lead that research team is that in the internal conversations we had in Justice Matters, I noticed a very distinct, um, it, it became very obvious that the people of color in the organization were very, very concerned about a jail expansion in ways that most of the white people um, were were not as concerned, and I took notice of that and um, and and began to understand how much um, how much this criminal justice system is linked into the systemic racism, and that drew me in into working on this. Um, I think that it it became and and this is a tactic that people in power you know I've seen it used in other contexts. To where you know they wanted to sneak the jail in, I think under the radar, and and the emphasis um, was really on the ballot measure was really on the mental health crisis center and this insistence that this was our only chance to get a mental health crisis center, and that there was just no way to do that without doubling the size of the jail. Which, if you take a step back and think about it, makes no sense at all. But it's actually a pretty compelling message coming from trusted leadership in a fairly small, um, supposedly progressive community. Um, so that was it was a discussion both in Justice Matters and our congregations and our community that that made for some interesting um, alliances and some really uncomfortable tensions between people who are used to um, agreeing on things. But in the end, Justice mm -hmm. Matters just not um, throw 
the people in the criminal justice system under the bus, as it were. We, we couldn't agree to support something that would be spending so many community resources to just bolster up this punitive system um, that we've had in place for so long. And we formed a, a coalition then with other, other organizations in town, the NAACP, um, a group called Kansas Appleseed, and the uh, Libertarian. The Libertarian Party and, and the Kansas ACLU yeah. started to decide that, um, well, and the, the real strange thing without going into a lot of detail is this next slide in, in blue kind of shows the average um, daily population in our jail. Um, and you can see that it spiked in 2007. And then um, once we started talking about a mental health crisis center in 2015, we were already overcrowded, sending inmates to other communities. Um, and there was just this massive explosion in the number of people that we saw in our jail. The red line across the same timetable is our general population growth in the county um, per 100 or per uh, thousand people. So you actually ended up seeing that um, the the number of people that we were locking up was growing at a rate five times our general population since the day the jail opened, and 15 times the rate of our general population just in the last few years, which, um, so if we were going to be brought in to an alliance to pass a bigger jail in order to get mental health, we started to get schooled on what's the phenomenon of jail growth in the country. Um, and this is where your listeners are probably going, gosh, I'm, I'm hearing a lot about mental health. What's this got to do with restorative justice? Um, and this is where if you kind of, if you're a believer, you're sort of, you witness that God's bringing you into this um, discussion about mental health only then to expose the greater, another significant problem, which is we're locking up more and more people across this country um, thinking that punitive practices is the way to change behavior. And so we started to do some research. Gosh, if we're going to back a bigger jail to get mental health, we better be comfortable with the bigger jail. And the more and more we did research, the more uncomfortable we got with bigger jails, and the more comfortable we got to more restorative um, practices that um, shifted away from punitive, um, uh, this punitive system that we started to see. So. And I think in, initially we were looking at the jail and the mental health issue thinking if the people who need mental health care could get that care instead of going to jail, it would reduce our jail population, which is true. But we also found um, how many people in, in the jail caught up in the criminal justice system. Yes, many of them have mental health issues. Um, a lot of them have suffer, you know, are in poverty and there's so much economic, so many economic factors that contribute to who is and who isn't in jail. We also found that there's case processing issues where people are being, are in jail longer than they need to be. So we, we went in looking through the, the lens of we need to not have people suffering from mental illness incarcerated, they need to be in treatment, but we also found how many people 
who have suffer from addictions also need treatment and how many people who are there because they can't afford their fines or their fees for their vehicles. So it opened up, um, it, it just opened up the whole system and then going back to what we talked about about the systemic issues, we realized it's not, it's not just one piece that needs, not one broken piece that we can fix and plug back in and everything will work well. It's the whole system and the whole mindset of violation and punishment mm -hmm. causing this, you know, what, what's a crisis really with our overcrowded jail in our community and really we've learned across the country. Joanna, um, I'm just, I, I just want to interject here. I, this is really a powerful um, piece that you're sharing right now. And I'm curious to know, in your observation, what, how in the world did we get to the point of thinking that we can lump together incarceration and mental health treatment or, or treatment otherwise? What, what happened? You mean why were they put on the ballot together in the first um, place? I, I think what I'm asking is more along the philosophical like perspective. Like yeah. in the United States, we seem to have this idea that that's okay. Um, I mean, a lot of us obviously don't believe that it's okay to lump uh, incarceration and treatment together, but but somehow it, it's come to that point as like it seems to be acceptable, even though, as you're so beautifully pointing out, all the evidence otherwise, um, that they're incompatible. And, you know, um, I could probably talk for a half an hour or more on all the points I'm aware of and that I've heard of and that I've seen uh, firsthand of the mistreatment of the of people with mental illness in, in prison. So I'm just curious what, what your thoughts are on how we got to this point, like perspective-wise. And I, just to, to emphasize how entrenched that thinking is, the, the main, Lawrence is a supposedly progressive community. We weren't, real, we weren't fighting and arguing with people who were tough on crime advocates. The, the primary narrative in our community of the pro-jail expansion forces was in compassionate incarceration. So our county commissioners were not talking about getting tough on crime. They were talking about needing to provide better health, health care and mental health care in the jail. They were talking about needing to provide more programming and more green space. And it was very much, they were very much painting a picture of problematic, quote unquote, problematic people in the community. You know, jail should be a place we can sort of dump them for whatever kind of you know, treatment can be provided in the jail. And one of our things we had to say over and over and over again is that people are better served by receiving treatment in the community and being able to continue to participate in their families and their jobs. But that's very much the narrative that we heard is exactly what you're talking about, that somehow the jail is, is an appropriate distributor of community services for this wide swath of people. Um, I'm not, I don't know how, I don't have insights into how we got there, but I know that that's where we are. I, I actually just think it's like right. a, a person asking, you, you know, why does a fish, does a fish know it's in water? <laughs> you know, I mean, does a criminal justice system that has an overcrowded jail, um, does it, it takes almost a secondary enlightenment 
uh, Martin Luther, since I'm a Lutheran, I'll just throw that in there. <laughs> Martin Luther today would be saying, you know, the new enlightenment um, is the concept that uh, isolation, punishment, um, and shame uh, are not as effective as relationship, treatment, and recovery and restoration. And so it goes back to the original thesis of the start of our conversation. If you are the sheriff of a jail that is approaching overcrowding, your answer to that overcrowding is an inevitable, it literally is built in. We, we bought property in 1999 when we built our jail with expansion in mind. I mean, it has acreage behind it to, to build it. And the architect that originally built it said it would last 20 years. 20 years ago, we wouldn't be taught, there would be no conversation about these new enlightened approaches to restoration, plus as John mentioned, the collateral damage that it has on children um, with the, the secondary trauma of a parent incarcerated and the loss of job and the instability of housing. So we, we really are just, um, it keeps coming back to a shift in culture. And this is, um, this is really not uh, just a Douglas County phenomenon. That's, that's one of the other things that we started to recognize is people across the country, both jails, federal and state prisons, are beginning to recognize that we can't build our way out of this um, problem of misbehavior in school or in communities and likewise in schools. And then when we actually see who we are punishing, we get really, really uncomfortable. Um, when you take a portrait of who's in our jails in Douglas County, which would be true across the country, um, you start seeing significant increases in the female population, the disproportionate numbers of minorities, um, and then those suffering with mental illness. Across the board in every jail in the country, you could take Douglas County and move it on up to Iowa City or over to Manhattan, um, Kansas, anywhere, and you would start seeing that these are the kinds of people that we are incarcerating, and um, it, we're almost reinforcing uh, the um, secondary punishment, you know, the, the idea that not only we're trying to poorly change their behavior, but we're actually driving them into intergenerational incarceration. Um, and the school to prison pipeline is, is yet another um, answer to that. So this is our manifestation of our local community. Um, it's one that you could see in other places. And um, I like to think that the reason our county commissioners thought the mental health and the jail needed to be put together was because there's so much acceptance that the inevitable answer to an overcrowded jail is one singular response, which is to build a bigger jail, that um, adding the mental health crisis center was just a way to give that lift for anybody that might have some discomfort over the idea of using their taxpayer money every time they buy in our state, when we buy groceries, um, investing in a bigger jail. Um, and Michael Gilbert really helped us understand some of this. He described 
bigger jails is nothing but a hole in a boat we try to fill with money because the inefficiency and ineffectiveness of improving public safety with greater incarceration is proving more and more true. Um, so the question is, is, if there's such a huge, if the system is designed to punish and there's so many entrenched interests um, that have to change the way they've been thinking about that to arrive at a more um, restorative, you know, broad sense, um, with mental health treatment, actual restorative justice, how does how does a community lead? And in our research, um, we found number one, uh, the MacArthur Foundation is pouring money into communities to lower the number of people that they incarcerate in their county jails. So one way that we've seen leadership kind of roll back this cultural phenomenon is by having foundation money um, be the, the carrot to get them to start doing reforms. And so this is a map of all of the communities that they um, have invested in that are now seeing lower incarceration rates by embracing treatment for addicts and mental health, um, by lower improving case processing, but also putting restorative justice courts um, into practice. So you can see where there's money that is brought to the table, you can see that kind of leadership. In Oklahoma City, it's interesting, the Chamber of Commerce was, was questioning a, the need for a bigger jail. Um, and the reason they wanted to do it is because they were worried about their tax base. Um, and the growing costs of incarceration. For us, we didn't have a chamber. Our chamber backed the bigger jail, and we couldn't get our county commissioners to write the grant to get the MacArthur Foundation funds. So we looked at Johnson County, Iowa City, which is another college town, who had voted three jails down um, as a community before the um, before the culture shift started to occur. And so um, this uh, rate, the, what you see there is the average daily population of their county jail um, lowering, and that is in direct proportionate to three jail no votes. Um, and so the grassroots leadership were ahead of the county commission and the sheriff's office in saying we really want to put our tax dollars into treatment um, both for mental illness and addiction. We want to shift away from the punitive practice and start seeing um, the use of restorative justice. And uh, that became kind of our, uh, our, our comparison. The green line shows our jail population growing as we started beating the drum for a bigger jail. And the red line is um, Iowa City's numbers decreasing um, as the community continued to vote against its bigger jail. And these are counties with very comparable populations. Yeah, precisely the same. In fact, Johnson County in Iowa City is a college town like ours with more people than our community. And they've had a record lower number of people in jail um, in their last 10 years history after three jail no votes and improved safety in terms of their crime rate. Um, 
whereas we've had the opposite. We've had growing numbers of people inside our jail, um, and then our crime numbers are sort of depends on who you ask. Sometimes they're lower, sometimes they're higher, uh, depending on the source. Um, but I'm trying to give you, we're trying to give your listeners a roadmap on how to how to make restorative justice and the shift away from punitive practice a systemic embrace. And um, there is no formula in the communities that have done it, except that culture shift requires um, a change. Um, for us, it's been our grassroots leadership, because we voted no um, after the spring election. The county commissioners put these two things together. Our community voted against the jail, which included the drug treatment center that we were in favor of. Um, we, Justice Matters, spearheaded the coalition to lead that, mostly because we couldn't sleep at night knowing that we were going to provide care to some um, at the expense of having more people locked up in our county jail. Um, so that happened in April of last year, and then we worked very, very hard and ultimately got the crisis center on the ballot alone in November. Um, and that, that was approved with a historic percentage of our uh, county residents, over 70%, voted for a quarter cent sales tax that exclusively went to build our crisis center and provide mental health treatment. And so um, we wanted to um, talk a little bit about advocacy and organizing um, for culture change um, at the systemic level. And I think the challenge for the listeners of Restorative Justice on the Rise is it's more than just knowing restorative justice is a better way. It's also providing the leadership, the messy um, process of leading a community uh, to make that culture shift. And one one thing that, that I have found to be true in this work is there aren't a lot of people, if, if you talk about restorative justice and present them with the facts of it, there aren't very many people, at least that I've run into, that will be against restorative justice. Everybody that we talk to says, that sounds like a great idea. But then when you mention, okay, then we need resources to put into this, and how about we not spend $25 million on a jail expansion that we won't need, and we will then have the resources we need for the drug court and the drug treatment program and the restorative neighborhood courts um, that's where the pushback comes. People are really happy to, to smile um, and, and agree in principle about restorative justice, but when it comes to, and in schools, right, when it comes to putting up the money to do the training, to do it the right way, that's where there's pushback because it's not just about saying yes to this great program of restorative justice, but we have to say no to the way things have always been done. We have to say no to the jail. We have to say no to the mandatory suspensions. And whenever you have to say no 
then people start to get uncomfortable and tension starts to build. And so there are those two pieces to, there's the education piece, but there also has to be, we're finding the resistance piece, um, which is a lot less comfortable and which is where it becomes really important to have a broad-based coalition standing with you in that work. Yeah, and I would just like to um, point out one uh, book by Howard Thayer, Changing Lenses, in that he talks about the importance of the paradigm shift that is required uh, to fully embrace a different strategy, to fully engage in a culture shift. Um, in the breakout session for the restorative justice in schools, uh, we had uh, school administrators present and uh, one of them asked, um, there are a lot of programs on the plate of our teachers. How can we justify adding something else to the plate? Dr. Ryan Fenderson from IIRP uh, said, we hear that question a lot. And what I'm here to tell you is, it is your plate. <laughs> you know, and, and it struck a chord with many of the teachers present because in the feedback forms, many of them put that quote down. It is the plate. These are the people. These are the relationships that are presented to us. That's our responsibility. Dr. Finneson also went on to talk about the paradigm shift that's going on in academics now, that kids don't have to come to school to learn information. They have it on their phone. And so what are we to do with the seven hours in the day that we have these students, you know? Uh, and maybe that it would be to maybe also focus on the most social-emotional um, requirements and uh, get into more relationship building and teach them how to work uh, together in groups to solve problems. I, I know uh, some friends of mine that are math teachers, there's a phenomenon called flip the classroom. So they record their math presentation and the students are expected to watch that on their own time so that when they come back to the classroom, it's about problem solving and doing the work together. Um, and so that's a huge paradigm shift. And so that's what we're really talking about is, is, is causing people to change the lens that they use to look at crime and misbehavior and, and to focus in on all the harm that, that we're ignoring by just punishing individuals and extracting them from community. You know, the, most of this restorative justice uh, comes from first-generation cultures where the focus was on keeping people in community mm -hmm. and not sending them out of community. I think it's interesting that we find ourselves now uh, thinking more about those what we called primitive practices, but mm -hmm. um, and in fact, it's it's relational. And so, you know, some of us believe that we were created to be relational, and so we should be focusing on that and bringing that to the forefront. Well, thank you so much. I just want to uh, remind everybody that we are in the good fortune of talking um, with Dr. John Arante, Joanna Harader, and Ben McConnell of Justice Matters. And for more information about their work and all that they're doing in so many branches of justice transformation and advocacy, 
for today's topic of advocacy, organizing, and restorative justice, please go to Justice Matters in Kansas, all one word, justicemattersinkansas.org. We'll give it back to you now, Ben. Thank you. Yeah, I I think um, I think again just the the ability to cast and proclaim a vision for a more restorative community um, is the product of so many of the people that have been on um, restorative justice on the rise who have you know almost instinctively been aware that um, uh, when isolation and punishment is the only answer um, to any form of misbehavior, that there is um, collateral damage and um, that there has to be a better way. Um, of course, isolation um, for those who are danger to themselves and others is certainly something that we won't take away. Um, but the idea of one size fits all. And so we would end on just the idea that there's so much gratitude because um, uh, when we started doing this adventure of trying to address mental health only then to recognize its intersection with a bigger jail and emphasis on spending money to incarcerate more people and then hearing about all of the ways that the same things we see in the criminal justice system are almost um, planted uh, earlier on within the school system. That whole journey was a process of discovering people that had been on this podcast mm -hmm. and listening to them and paying attention to them and then recognizing that we're not alone. Um, the only thing I would say is that it's not enough to simply know that there's a better way. Um, it, it, there is something. Um, Martin Luther King once said, you know, you can't um, legislate uh, the change of heart, but you can certainly prohibit cruelty. Um, and that's what I think we're trying to do. We're prohibiting uh, massive investments in more punishment and trying to include um, and proclaim the vision of restorative justice. And we're beholden to those that have done the research and helped us understand that, that we have in our instinctive hearts. And so we're really grateful for that. We also wish to challenge those um, that have that in their heart to not simply just um, set up a book club. No offense, John. <laughs> setting up a book club. Um, but to write letters to the editor. Uh, get organized, um, proclaim the vision in the public arena where systems need to understand um, that there are people that may even be ahead of them um, in terms of converting the way they think um, and operate. So I think that's the way um, I'd like to leave it, Joanna or John. They're just saying no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and just kudos to you for enabling us to to be on uh, the podcast, Molly. Oh, thank you. Thank you, each of you, so much for your time and wisdom today. And I, I do have a concluding brief question, if I may, uh, upon sure. which I'd love to 
to leave with our, our listener base and our global community. Um, and that is based in this concept of, you know, that you so beautifully said just now, um, that we're not alone. I know many, many communities that are uh, the, in the listenership here are trying to build and organize. What do you want to leave us with as maybe a, a, a couple key steps and key things to hold as we are mobilizing? What is critical? One of the strengths of Justice Matters and other DART organizations is that they start with existing faith communities. Um, and I, I understand certainly not everyone who supports um, restorative justice is a person of faith, but there's very, very deep well um, to draw from whether you're speaking with people who are Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, all of our, um, all of these faiths have um, values of restoration and re and um, that we can draw from. So that's an advantage that Justice Matters has, and churches are already organized. Um, some churches more organized than others, but <laughs> but you're already starting with with organized groups um, in that way, and that's been a strength of our particular organization. Yeah, I'd also add just that there's strength in numbers. Um, any, I mean, if you look internationally, nationally, or locally, um, of any culture shift that was um, toward compassion um, and wholeness of a community, that I don't. I take issue with the idea that the. Uh, uh, moral arc of history just inevitably bends towards justice. I think it's bent toward justice. So I would just mm -hmm. um, encourage people, um, feel free to contact me directly um, or anybody at the DART Center to talk about the science of community organizing um, and just say, you know, don't go alone. Don't write a letter to the editor by yourself. Lead others. Bring other people together. Um, don't be afraid that culture shift will require a little bit of tension. Um, uh, we we call that raising the heat. I mean, you can raise it to the point where everybody wants to get out of the room, uh, which isn't good. Um, but if it just remains cold, um, there isn't any movement forward. So um, I just say uh, um, try to bring together large numbers of people and, and help uh, be on message in terms of lifting up um, uh, and casting and proclaiming an alternative vision that's more restorative. Uh, I would just like to say that, you know, based on your concept of what it feels like to be isolated, um, it's, it's a dreadful feeling. We, we all know that. Uh, but again, in, in some of our punitive situations, we choose to isolate a person who likely needs to feel engaged in community. And so as we look at uh, the behavior of young people today, to focus on the schools again at least, mm -hmm. um, there, there seems to be an alarming need uh, to uh, become famous, 
to have a following? How many how many likes do I have on my Facebook page? How, how many people saw my video? Um, so this desire to feel a part of community is something innate that we need to revisit and include people in those spaces where we can all share that we all have some level of mental health, some level of social health disorder, and that could unify us mm. rather than unite us. Mm. So beautifully put. Thank you so much, John and Ben and Joanna, for being with us today. And I just wish you all the best in your work. And um, Ben, you mentioned a contact point for people. Do you want to be more specific about a phone number or an email, or shall we just send the, uh, everyone to justicemattersinkansas.org? What would you like to share? Actually, um, feel free to email me directly, um, ben at justicemattersinkansas.org. Um, ben at justicemattersinkansas, Kansas spelled out, dot org. Just uh, it's it's our website with Ben at at the beginning of it, and um, I would be glad to talk Great. to people about um, how to bring together pe uh, how to organize and bring together people to make more restorative communities a reality. Wonderful, and and one final note: any events or workshops or presentations that you might have in on the horizon in the near future that you'd like to share with us? Well, if you're in the Lawrence, Kansas area, um, we are bringing <laughs> together uh, 1,200 people on May 7th um, to lift up uh, a more restorative city both in our school system and in our criminal justice system. And uh, that's that's our big... Um, event once a year where we try to show large public support for these ideas. And so, if you happen to be in the area, um, feel free to feel free to drop us an email, and um, we'll make sure you get tickets. And that's uh, a, a giant event regarding um, building restorative cities, right? Is that correct? Yeah, actually, trying to get um, our school board and school superintendent. To consider um, uh, um, an IIRP implementation, either as a pilot project um, in one or two schools, or perhaps a broader implementation, is kind of the follow-up to our recent restorative justice summit. And then in the criminal justice system, we have a myriad of different things um, that include drug treatment. Um, restorative justice courts and others that we're um, lifting up for consideration among our prosecuting attorney and, and county commission um, to help alleviate our jail population while um, improving or improving outcomes and, and saving taxpayer money. So it's our big um, event where we try to demonstrate through large numbers of people that there's an appetite for this vision in our community. Wonderful. And I would this just like to add the work you're doing. Go ahead. In our Tom. opening Thank you. the summit, uh, uh, Dr. Gilbert mentioned and spoke a lot about restorative communities. Mm -hmm. 
and in the closing comments by Chief Butler, he also addressed restorative communities. And while we have these two initiatives here in Lawrence, it's really about creating a restorative community by highlighting two areas that really need our attention. But it's the restorative community, you know, the long-range vision yeah. is that this, the whole community becomes restorative in nature. Um, and as uh, some say, when, when you know you've reached it in schools, when you hear kids say, uh, we've got an issue that came up today, but we're going to circle up tonight and, and, and figure that out. So that's our end game, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again, um, wonderful team from Justice Matters, based in Lawrence, but a much wider sphere of influence and service that you're doing um, to our country and to even beyond our country to this world. So thank you so much, each of you, for your de dedicated work, selfless work. Um, and I just want to remind everyone once again uh, to please visit Justice Matters website and to find out much more about their present focal areas, restorative justice in schools, housing, growing incarceration, childhood trauma, and mental illness. And again, if you can make it, May 7th is the big event that they are convening, um, as mentioned just a moment ago. So much more you can find out about at justicemattersinkansas.org. Um, I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and it's been really a pleasure and an honor to sit with you all today. Hope you've enjoyed this dialogue and conversation and all the great information that Justice Matters has shared with us today. Um, hope to see you in the near future for all of our podcasts, all of our dialogues, and our additional learning opportunities. Please visit restorativejusticeontherise.org. Thank you, everyone.